Hello and welcome to the i3 Insights podcast. My name is Wouter Klein and I'm the Director of Content for the Investment Innovation Institute. As you probably know, we love our disclaimers in this industry, so here's ours. The following recording is for educational purposes only. It does not constitute financial advice. Please enjoy the show. Welcome to the i3 Insights podcast. My name is Daniel Grioli and I'm the Market Fox columnist for i3 Insights. I'd like to give a big thank you to our steadily growing group of listeners. We really enjoy receiving your comments and feedback. Please get in touch by using the contact page on the i3 website. That's www.i3-invest forward slash contact. You can also follow us on Twitter at i3invest and at market underscore fox. Today I'm joined by Alex Weislitz, founder and executive director of Thorny Investment Group. Thorny is the responsible entity of two listed investment companies here in Australia, Thorny Opportunities Limited and Thorny Technologies Limited. Alex is arguably more famous for turning an initial investment of $1.5 million into a $1.39 billion fortune 25 years later. His fortune takes him to number 54 on the BRW Australian Rich List. Alex has an interesting and somewhat unusual set of skills and interests. There aren't many fund managers with deep experience investing in microcap stocks, as an activist investor, a contrarian value investor, and an investor in tech companies. I can't wait to chat with Alex about all these topics and more. So without further ado, Alex Weislitz, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much. I'm happy to be here. Thanks for agreeing to do this. We normally start off asking our guests to tell us a little bit about their background and how they got started in the investment business. Well, when I was 13 at uh, my birthday, it was a big event, uh, uh, bar mitzvah in the Jewish tradition, uh, a friend of my parents, as a gift, gave me a few BHP shares. And uh, I didn't even know shares existed. I didn't know anything about them. And he took me under his wing and explained a little bit about it. And I was really thrilled when I got my first dividend check. And I thought uh, that was great because previously I'd been washing cars and delivering newspapers to earn a few dollars and this was suddenly just came uh, in the mail so I thought this is something I need to know more about. Do you remember what you spent that first dividend check on? I think I did. I bought a, uh, a bigger bike so I can deliver more newspapers. Very good. Okay so that was your introduction to the stock market. How did you start the more formal part of your career? Well I studied law and economics at university and uh, but uh, was sort of interested more in the business field and went over to eventually to New York, found a job on Wall Street and worked there for about a year and a half, uh, really on more of the sales side across a whole bunch of products in the international department of Prudential Securities. Um, I realized I preferred to be on the deal instigation side 
and reached out to an Australian entrepreneur at the time, uh, Australia's first billionaire, actually, Robert Holmes Accord, and was able to secure a job with him uh, in his fledgling New York office. And uh, I stayed with him for four years, learned a lot about the investment side and had a determination to go down that investment path when I returned to uh, my hometown in Melbourne. Okay, very good. So not all of our listeners uh, might be familiar with Robert Holmes Court and the kinds of deals that he did. Can you tell us a little bit more about what it was like working there? Yes, it was a thrilling environment. Uh, when we opened the New York office, he had about $10 million of uh, assets or investments in the US, it was just starting off. But in about 18 months, we had close to a billion dollars that we were in invested in various companies there, including some resource companies. And I was lucky enough, even though a young member of the team, I think the youngest, uh, to be uh, in the middle of all of that. And so it was a tremendous learning curve. Um, and I was lucky from him. He was both a skilled trader and indeed he was the leading uh, exponent of the option market in Australia. And he taught me about that, uh, equities. But he was also a very astute um, investor in his own right on fundamentals of a company, uh, which I learned to, um, uh, to utilize on, in my analysis, and also someone who could uh, pick up on the value of intangible assets or not recognized assets uh, at market values that may be underwritten uh, on book values in uh, balance sheets. Um, he was a great strategist and a great tactician, and I learned also from him, I suppose, to keep your options open and keep uh, your um, alternatives, alternative approaches um, alive. And he was also a very dynamic uh, investor in the sense that he was an uh, early activist. He challenged boards, management, strategy of those companies that he invested in, always with an eye of how to extract more value uh, on behalf of uh, shareholders. And I guess I adopted that approach right from the very beginning when I started uh, my investment company. We'll be asking you a little bit more about that activism a little later in the podcast. So you mentioned that you returned to Australia, and if I'm correct, you received some job offers for some, from two fairly notorious Australian businessmen, Alan Bond and Christopher Scase. What was it like meeting them and... Uh, why did you decide to turn those down? Uh, yes, well, having worked with Holmes Accord, who was the ultimate uh, entrepreneur, I decided that environment was very exciting, very creative, um, very broad, because they would uh, pursue lots of different opportunities. So when I decided to return to um, Australia, I reached out to some of the better-known entrepreneurs, and the two that you mentioned were very topical and noticeable. And also they were spreading beyond Australia internationally, which I was sort of interested in uh, keeping alive the opportunity of international exposure and travel. Um, Alan Bond had taken over through his uh, um, Bond Corp, uh, the former Homes Court uh, empire of uh, Bell Group and Bell Resources. So that was the initial uh, reason I had an opportunity to engage with his camp. Um, and Christopher Scase was, uh, uh, you know, expanding it through television and uh, hotels and other assets. So uh, amongst other entrepreneurs that I met, uh, I met them. They were both uh, 
very engaging personalities, uh, very uh, enthusiastic, uh, big vision kind of dreamers, and um, very uh, uh, dynamic personalities. So you could see why um, people were attracted to them. Um, and they were uh, global visionaries, I guess. They felt that they could uh, achieve tremendous uh, amounts. Uh, and as I said, big dreamers. Just an interesting coincidence, my office here on Collins Street actually happens to be Christopher Scase's old office. <laughs> One of the other tenants on the floor uh, has in his office what was the safe that Christopher Scaife used, which they had to crack. They had to call somebody in to cut the door open to... Uh, to find there was nothing in there. <laughs> to find there was nothing in there after he'd, he'd ran away from Australia. So. <laughs> Very interesting. But. Yeah, so, then, so, uh, so as I said, I was attracted to uh, entrepreneurs, but in the end, I wanted to be in my uh, hometown of Melbourne where my, my family was. So um, I was trying to identify who was a up-and-coming, successful entrepreneur, businessman, and that's where I reached out to Richard Pratt, who was um, not only uh, a terrific uh, industrialist through his manufacturing operation, Visi, but at that stage, he had a financial services uh, arm that was growing, uh, and um, that was appealed to me in terms of uh, trying to um, join him in Melbourne. Okay. So we'll come on to this uh, subject of, of Richard Pratt and Thorny Group a little later. But first, a, a question that I like to ask my guests about their early careers. What lessons did you have to learn the hard way? Well, the first lesson I suppose I learned was when I went to New York, um, I realized that I, I wasn't part of the traditional system of entry into um, Wall Street. And I was, as an outsider, not having gone to the Ivy League schools and, um, and the high schools, uh, you had to present your not only your academic credentials, but create a narrative around yourself that would encourage people to give you a chance. Um, but that required uh, a fair amount of resilience. That required uh, getting rejected um, and uh, persevering. So indeed, when I was trying to get the job with Homes Accord, um, you know, I would, um, I would, I sent out lots of letters. Uh, well, I lettered to him a cold call letter, and then I just pursued him virtually every day with a phone call and said, "Well, when are you coming? When can I have an interview? When are you coming? When can I have an interview?" And he passed me on to uh, his head of international based in London, and I did the same thing. And eventually, uh, Alan Newman was his name. His PA took pity on me and organized an interview for when I got to, uh, when he arrived in New York. And he said, I don't really know anything about you, and I'm not going to check into your background too much, but because I like your perseverance and your determination. So on that basis alone, I think he virtually gave me the job opportunity. That's a very interesting story and a good lesson, I guess, for everybody that you never know when that persistence is going to pay off. So you're, you're now back in Melbourne working with Richard Pratt, uh, an up-and-coming entrepre entrepreneur and successful industrialist. How did Thorny Investments get its start? Well, uh, I maintained my interest in the investment world after New York, and I really... Um, uh, spoke to Richard and said, look, I'm very happy to learn uh, some things about the manufacturing operation. And indeed, I was working in the corporate head office with him. 
But I said, I'd prefer to spend more time on your financial services arm. And at that stage, he also had an insurance company that uh, obviously had an investment um, um, management side to, to the insurance funds. Um, so I was able to split my role between the corporate responsibilities in treasury and finance and, and overseeing the, um, uh, the manufacturing side of the, uh, uh, the business. But I was able to also spend some time in the investment side of um, uh, the insurance company. And that's really where my interests laid. And after a period of time, uh, I went to Richard and said, look, uh, I really want to pursue the investment side as a more um, career-based uh, direction. And uh, even though he wasn't that keen on that, uh, I, I, he enabled me um, to... Uh, find some early funding um, and I started on a part-time basis thorny while I was still working in the corporate office and learning about manufacturing and industry so um, that was in the early 90s okay so how for how long were you running thorny on a part-time basis uh, for a couple of years and before I got um, first uh, full-time employee and I committed myself to more time there but initially, I was running it out of uh, the corporate office of Vizi, and uh, that was terrific because through Richard, a genuine um, industrialist, and I would argue perhaps Australia's greatest industrialist, I really learned a lot about day-to-day -day business, about strategic planning, importance of cash flow, leadership, um, visiting physical locations, um, capital management. Many, many lessons that I learned um, in following Richard around and many discussions with him and his key executives. Again, even though I was pretty young, I was able to get some terrific insights which have stayed with me all the way through and has enabled me to look with a lot greater depth uh, at companies than I think most fund managers have ever had to experience because I was really... Um, close to the physical operations of uh, the manufacturing enterprise. So it sounds like you think the investment side and the business side are really two sides of the same coin. It is very much to me. I've always said um, I love the business of business. I don't. Uh, I like the, the the growth plans, expansion, the dynamics of it, the hard decision making that's required, which I learned from Richard in when things are going wrong to be able to cut your losses, to be able to pivot, but to keep the, um, the ship moving forward, so to speak. Take the knocks, something goes wrong, you lose a customer, for example, a machine breaks down, for example. Um, what, what are your crisis management plans when all of these things happen? Um, those were invaluable lessons, and I think about them still every day in the context of investing. So to me, understanding the business is paramount to investing. Um, I'm not really someone who watches the screen all day and uh, looks for the prices moving fractionally during the course of the day. I'm more interested in the bigger picture and the uh, opportunity for um, long-term value to come out of an enterprise. Um, so that's why we're comfortable investing in private companies as well as in public companies because I've had exposure to both. Uh, but to me, uh, exactly as you said, I believe they're one and the same uh, experience investing in the business and investing 
through equity into uh, the shares. And quite often we invest through convertible notes or other loan instruments because it's really the same assessing the risk and opportunity relating to a business. So you've, you've started Thorny, you're working on a part-time basis. Did you ever, in your wildest dreams, and I know there's a bit of hindsight factored into this question, did you ever envisage that it would become what it is today? Absolutely not. What um, did you think it would be? I, I, I was around people, uh, fortunately like Richard, who always used to say, if you dream big, you can achieve big. If you dream small, you will achieve small. Um, Holmes Accord was also another big believer that he could do things. I didn't have that degree of self-confidence that those um, entrepreneurs had. And maybe they didn't at the same age. I'm not sure. I was just still in my uh, uh, younger years. But I did have a strong sense of self-belief. And I also learned from my parents, who were refugees, um, the value of both hard work and never giving in and having a go. So uh, I thought with that initial $1.15 million that I was uh, uh, loaned, um, if I could turn that into $2 million, that would be extraordinary. And once we got, actually, I ended up turning that into $4 million in year one, and I thought I sort of couldn't really believe it, actually. And it was like an enormous amount of, of money to me, and I sort of was taken aback by that. And I really said to myself, gee, I've got to try and do this for a second year to convince myself that it's real, uh, which I did. The four then uh, turned into, I think, seven or seven and a quarter. And um, I think by the end of those two part-time years, I felt enough confidence that we could achieve something else. And partway through, I said, oh, my God, if we could get to 10 million, that would be incredible. But I never envisaged that we would get to tens of tens or even hundreds of millions and uh, and uh, exceeding a billion dollars never became in my thoughts until many years later on the journey. That's a great story. I feel like I have to ask, what did you do to turn one million into four? Well, I was I was doing something which actually wasn't, uh, I realized that I was good at, but it wasn't something that I was actually my um, my preferred way of going. I was trading actively. And... Uh, and uh, I was using some leverage of options, which I'd learned from Holmes Accord. Um, and what I liked about that was it was quick and you got a tangible result one way or the other. Uh, what I didn't like about it is I wasn't getting close enough to the businesses that I was investing in. And so even though I was successful, I didn't like that as a lifestyle choice. I liked, uh, from the experience of Vizzy, getting closer to the operation. So... I actually pivoted once uh, we got a bit further down the line and started to shift to microcap investing because I still didn't have a lot of money to enough money to play in the large caps or the mid caps in a meaningful strategic way so but the micro caps you could put a few hundred thousand dollars to work and you could buy a stake or and you could build up to a substantial stake where you could start to have a dialogue with the um, uh, um, executives or the board members and really get more involved in the strategic direction and the tactics they were employing and really get to know the operation and see whether you felt this is something that could actually uh, exceed expectations and really outperform. Um, so that was a change of approach but it was much more closer to what I was interested in 
from a lifestyle point of view and also a, a stimulating and uh, intellectual kind of pursuit. And in doing so, um, I realized that uh, I'd also, it suited my personality to be across all the industries because I love learning. I love seeing different uh, uh, businesses and different enterprises, how they're going and seeing what I can learn from one business, one industry and take it to another industry. And I didn't think there was a lot of people doing that. So I thought that's terrific rather than be super specialist just in one area or another. So I always, and I still do find it very intellectually stimulating uh, going across uh, those kind of uh, verticals. And that leads me to my next question, which is about the two listed investment companies that you manage, Thorny Opportunities and Thorny Tech. Yes. And on the surface, those two companies may seem quite different because one is the Opportunities Fund is investing in businesses that have been running for a long time in most cases, fairly stable industries, not too much change perhaps, or opportunities where you have uh, the opportunity to do something on the activist side, whereas the the tech-listed investment company is very much about new businesses and new ideas. And there aren't too many fund managers that would manage both. Um, Typically, fund managers tend to stick to yeah. to one thing so how do you you mentioned this love of learning and this interest in the business of business how do you switch between the two funds and perhaps first you can tell us a little bit more about both investment well, companies yeah happy to do that and it is uh, um, and the reason we created two different vehicles is they are two different investment experiences and two different type of um, uh, risk reward scenarios around it but in relation to um uh, activism, it, it's, activism has become a sort of popular term uh, really in the last five or ten years and uh, s- specific activist funds that have emerged. But uh, I would argue that we were um, sort of uh, activists in a non-hostile way right from the very beginning, as I talked about with those small caps. I, I call it constructivism, which is sort of uh, pushing or engaging in debate for constructive change. Um and most of the time, uh, we've achieved good discussions with management uh, without any hostility, just a question of discussing uh, different approaches and what could be a more effective rate of return, could be a more effective um, outcome, could be um, helping to make a tougher decision on divesting of a business or closing down of a business with the support of a major shareholder. Um, to the management in in making a a tough call that might require write-offs or things along those lines. But I've also always been interested in innovation. And I noticed again with Richard Pratt that he was always in an old-fashioned business, if you like, paper making and uh, and box making and recycling. He was always going overseas looking for what, uh, what was new technology, new initiatives and so on. So my mind uh, uh, was open to changes, uh, seeing what new technologies were all about and uh, embracing them where it made sense. But what's common about both of those things, those companies, is that we're really, um, for the most part, backers of people and individuals who have got uh, passion, skill, uh, knowledge, uh, a can-do attitude, and usually those who have got their own money alongside other shareholders, so there's an alignment of interests. Um, those uh, 
tech entrepreneurs uh, and well as more old-fashioned, if you like, or, or um, non-tech companies. That's a commonality across all of them. And that's what we like to support. Tech investing, we've done it, uh, we've been doing it for many, many years in Australia, supporting it in the medical uh, space uh, and companies that uh, were creating their own experience, many of them sort of an Australian version of an overseas experience that had already had a few years of uh, trial and error or, or success. Um, so to, to be able to, for us to be confident that uh, it was a path that... Um, not proven yet in Australia, but indeed was uh, forged perhaps earlier on overseas. And for example, a company like Webjet that we were a supporter for uh, more than 10 years ago, and we're still a shareholder there, um, they sort of had an online model where people engage and get uh, a marketplace of pricing on uh, different offerings from the airlines and, and subsequently hotels. And uh, people always questioning, well, wh why would someone go to that and pay a fee where you can go to Qantas's website yourself or to uh, Virgin or whatever? But we noticed from overseas that there was a stickiness to it. And if you created a brand which had integrity and good service and trust, then people would come back and they don't mind paying a small fee for that knowledge. So we had identified that. And uh, whereas most people were skeptical, we were we embraced it and became big shareholder in the company with terrific leadership and management, which it still has today, uh, has delivered. And, uh, you know, that uh, those shares have gone from, I think, 15 or 20 cents to uh, $13 today. And it's been a terrific journey uh, for us. So, so we're not scared of new ideas. We're not scared of new approaches. But they're not necessarily always overnight successes and they take time to come through. Uh, and that's why the, uh, the risks are different to uh, Thorny Opportunities. Thorny Opportunities was playing to uh, our strength of many, many years of experience in um, being a constructivist, uh, being involved in recapitalizing and turning around companies that have faltered or wavered for one reason or another. We're very comfortable in that field. Personally, I enjoy the challenge of trying to restore something that has uh, gone wrong. Um, and we believe we can offer a lot of skills and experience and network of people as well as capital to help a company get back on the right path. You've given us a few hints in your responses as to your investment philosophy, this focus on people, the uh, focus on the business itself and its ability to generate cash and understanding the operations and how you can perhaps uh, work in a constructive way with companies to help them improve their operations. Just wondering if you could tell us a little bit more specifically, perhaps, or in a bit more detail, what is your investment philosophy? <laughs> investment philosophy, I suppose, is uh, how do we make mid- and long-term um, returns on an absolute basis that is worthwhile the effort of investing and um, the approach is pretty simple. We, you, first of all, try to uh, base all our investing on what I would call a sort of a value proposition. Um, and that is to get in at a price that is attractive from a risk-reward basis that we think will create a good alpha. Um, we're not generally investing... Um, to make 5% or even 10%. We're trying to outperform that and 
also trying to identify companies that if they get the elements that we like correct, which is the business strategy, uh, the management executive team, the strong, constructive, supportive, strategic board of directors led by a, the appropriate chairman, uh, they have the right culture in the organization. We're looking for these type of companies so that we can stay with them for multiple years as an investor uh, and not so much as a trader or flipping the, the, the uh, position. Uh, and that is important, particularly when you're talking about micro caps or uh, mid cap, uh, smaller mid cap companies, because um, if you, particularly if you take a strategic stake, there's not a tremendous amount of liquidity. Um, you can't borrow against it uh, aggressively. Um, so you really want to make sure you're on the right track for multiple years and progressively you can exit over time. But actually, uh, a lot of our exits have come through M&A activity as companies have grown, shown uh, expansion paths and have become more attractive to a bigger company, perhaps with a bigger balance sheet who can um, go on that journey uh, a little bit faster because they can leverage their position. So we're looking for things that um, can go up for um, an extended period of time. Uh, so our philosophy is still to back management and if we uh, and then the business, but in some situations we find the business is good but the management is not so good and then we, we try to be part of orchestrating uh, a change of leadership so that the appropriate management can um, get the business back on track. So we look for value, we look for um, people, we look for the um, the moats around the business, to use a Warren Buffett term, what is the protection against competitors, um, and try to understand the threats relating to that. Um, we try to look at businesses that have sufficient profit margin so that if things perform, if the business performs, it will be uh, profitable. Um, those that potentially can pay dividends down the track if they're not already. Um, those that are not overgeared so that they have uh, enough buffer zone if the market's turned against them or the economy turns against them. And usually um, ones where we can see expansion possibilities through acquisition or through product launches or, or other things along those lines. Uh, those are some of the things we look for as part of our philosophy of um, identifying value and growth. So you mentioned that you're, you're not looking for 5 or 10% return plays. Do you have a, a target level of return in mind or are you looking for um, an upside downside asymmetry you hear some investors talk about looking for in opportunities where they see an upside that's uh, three or four times what they see the downside and how does valuation feature in all of this so you mentioned you're looking for value does that mean that you're using detailed valuation techniques or is it more of a, a back of the envelope trying to think where this could get to a few years out kind of exercise? Well, it's a little bit um, uh, different in Thorny Opportunities to Thorny Technology from that point of view. Uh, in the technology space, um, there's a real trade-off that you have to deal with, which is um, often companies have got no revenue or very little revenue 
most of them are not profitable. Uh, most of them in the early days are burning cash, negative cash flow. Uh, but there's a vision and there's a, a position in there trying to attract in a very fast-changing world. So to assess value there is a lot harder than in traditional type of uh, companies, say a manufacturing company. So you have to have a slightly different mindset in looking at that. You can take a lot of leads from overseas uh, companies which have uh, created uh, terrific value out of companies even still not making money uh, because of its blue sky potential. And, uh, and if you believe ultimately in their potential for them to have market penetration and that they can turn the traffic that is going through their site or their app or um, their uh, particular uh, innovative technology and you believe in their revenue model that ultimately revenue will come through, uh, th those are some of the key f factor points to, to go in. But in those companies, you're certainly not looking for 5 or 10% because the reward has to be higher because of the risks associated with those earlier stage uh, uh, businesses. So in those companies, we're looking to make multiples on our money uh, because there is a risk that a um, new technology will come and uh, outposition them um, and that many things will occur on the way through for, before revenue starts actually translating into a meaningful way. So the risk is, is high, and we might often play scenarios where we're saying the risk is maybe 20% or 50% or something like that, or even they might even go out of business altogether if they can't raise sufficient money. So you want to know that you can make three or four or five times your money in that situation. And you have to, of course, have a, a, a sort of a portfolio approach when you're dealing with tech companies because, um, because of those risk characteristics. So, and that's what we've done at Thorny Technologies. Um, we've, we've spread, we've spread uh, the investment portfolio at the moment across, first of all, um, listed companies, pre-IPO companies, um, earlier stage companies, and we've also spread within those categories uh, a number of investments. So we're giving ourselves uh, um, an opportunity for any one of the investments to outperform, but we're also saying you know some things could go wrong on the journey, and uh, um, we're making sure that none of those things that go wrong could affect the overall um, uh, stability and opportunity of Thorny Technologies to perform over time. You mentioned the importance of diversification there, and you're obviously investing in areas where there aren't really market benchmarks, and even if they were, I get the impression you're not the kind of investor that's too interested in what market weight of a, of a stock is in constructing your portfolio. How do you determine position sizes? So you've, you've looked at the, the risk-reward. How do you decide whether you're putting 1% of the fund, 2% or whatever into an opportunity? Well, that's a good question. Uh, when we went out to investors and sought the mandates for both Thorny Opportunities and Thorny Technologies, we were quite clear in saying that we would not be doing exactly what a traditional fund manager would do, um, who are generally benchmark against one index or another and uh, are focused on just trying to outperform that index. Um, that way, they, if they do that consistently, they will retain their funds under management. Um, I said, first of all, I'm going to be investing a significant amount of my wealth alongside you. 
So, and I'm interested in absolute performance. Um, so uh, that differentiates us quite a lot already. Uh, secondly, I said to people as part of that mandate, we will be prepared to uh, overweight in certain investment positions when we think it's appropriate to do so. So what does it mean appropriate? It means where we think there's superior chance for alpha to come out of that situation. And for example, in Thorny Opportunities, we went overweight in a company called uh, ServiceStream, which we were part of the recapitalization. A great management team, which we believed in. Um, always been a good business, but they had one bad operating division, which is a relatively new one. Once they cut that division, they went back to their core business, focused on it, and their leadership and management skills came out um, consistently. I think they've had nine growth quarters in uh, growth halves in a row now, restored their balance sheet and in good shape. Now, we're in an overweight position. It has been virtually all the way through Thorny Opportunities three years, and it still remains overweight, but it's uh, consistently performed for us. So, um, again, if you listen to Warren Buffett, he would say, why would you change a winning situation just for the sake of turning over the money? If you've got characteristics of outperformance, um, return on capital is good, return on equity is good, um, the growth potential is still there, led by a good team who have skin in the game, there's no need to change it just for the sake of proper waiting per se. Um, and that's our belief. It's very hard to find those characteristics all coming together for a company. So when, when they do come together, our view is to stick with it. And, and uh, in many situations, um, I think individuals and fund managers uh, cut their profits too early, actually, instead of letting them run uh, when they've got all the things in place that it's likely to run more likely than it won't run uh, further. So stick with something that's good and um, take the opportunity. So uh, that's on the one hand. On the other hand, you know, we won't let it get to a ridiculous overweighting where uh, something could jeopardize it. So, you know, we might let a position be 20% of the fund uh, of the pool of capital, maybe 25. We wouldn't let it get to 75% and, and have that... Um, correlation too too dramatic in that sense so but uh we we will never be sort of conventional in the in the standard um sort of fund management approach and i think that's hopefully over time that will uh, be reflected in our performance i think when you talked also before about the valuation metrics for me i'm more a back of the envelope type of person to see the bigger picture and uh, top down however um, the uh, investment managers in the office, I require them to work uh, bottoms up. And so the two hopefully should meet with roughly the same approach to the future. So in other words, um, I will go more intuitively with the basic number assessment and a view on the team and the approach of the strategy. A wider team will make sure that the full uh, valuation metrics will be analyzed and monitored constantly uh, on the journey of our investment with that company. So hopefully we've covered things on a comprehensive basis. Just a little further on this point of diversification, how many stocks do you think are enough to diversify a portfolio? 
Because uh, you mentioned these opportunities where everything comes together are quite hard to find. Yes. So I can imagine you're not running large portfolios with... Well, we have a wider, as I said, the nature of technology and the risks there require us to have a wider group of companies. So I think uh, including unlisted, uh, we probably have 50 investments in uh, Thorny Technologies at the moment. And and, uh, not only are they spread across the uh, categories I mentioned earlier, which are mature listed, uh, immature listed, pre-IPO, earlier stage, we're also diversifying across geographies. So we have a number of investments in the United States, a number of investments in Israel, both who are leaders in technology. They also give us insights into um, uh, comparatives in Australia in the same segments. So that's a broader group of companies. Uh, Thorny Opportunities, um, by its nature, um, is more concentrated. So we will have less positions and we will try to be in a more detailed way on top of those situations, some of which require activism and more um, dynamic, engaged involvement from us at a particular point in time. So that's quite resource intensive, so we can't have that many anyway to do the job effectively. You've mentioned earlier in our conversation that sometimes investment opportunity takes time to prove out. And particularly in the case of thorny opportunities, you're often involved in turning around companies. I'm guessing there's a considerable amount of uncertainty around whether the turnaround strategy will work or not. What do you do with a stock that that keeps underperforming? Do you stick with it? Do you cut your losses? Do you buy more? And how do you make that assessment? Well, um, we've done all of that. Uh, in approaching those things. We've cut our losses, we've averaged down, um, we've taken time to allow some things to develop and see if what we're being told is uh, in fact coming through. And in some cases we've been very um, aggressively active in creating change when we see things are not coming through as promised uh, look, each situation we make an individual assessment on, depending on on our view. And you know, if the circumstances change, we might change our mind. If we believe our investment thesis from the beginning is still correct, but they haven't, the company hasn't been able to execute on on it, or moved quick enough, or have spent too much money in getting there. In other words, management deficiencies, um, or or um, executive um, inefficiencies or lack of um, decision-making, decisive decision-making quick enough uh, is different to whether the assets or the, or the business model might be good or bad. So we have to assess all those things constantly. Um, I mean, investing, people need to realize investing is um, it's a living organism. Uh, thorny opportunities, thorny technologies are living and breathing every day, in my view, and um, they are affected by many things, the external, uh, global issues, and of course their internal own um, micro uh, world that they live in. So we've got to work out, is it an external factor that's affecting the company, uh, a geopolitical risk, a big financial risk, a currency risk, an interest rate risk, a, a financing risk, 
Uh, or is it, uh, again, getting back to management decisions that are not leading the company well enough? Um, and have they overpaid for something? Have they, uh, should they have uh, taken an opportunity that they missed out on? So all of these things uh, change every day. Uh, but we want to know if the overall strategy is right and the thematic is right. If we're comfortable with that, uh, then usually we will stay and uh, work hard, average down and battle on. If we think we've got it wrong in our original assessment, uh, not understanding the in industry dynamics it might be in, uh, then may we may well cut and uh, take our losses and move on. Not happily, I don't like taking losses, but if it makes sense to do so in the scheme, biggest scheme um, of things, then we we will do we will do that. Okay. Well, thanks for taking us through your investment philosophy. Perhaps we'll ask a few quick questions about some of the specific areas: uh, microcap, the activist investing, and technology. Starting with microcaps. Do you think microcap stocks are as risky as many people believe? I don't, actually. Um, um, I, I don't think they're well understood, and in many cases they're not well analysed and they're not covered well by the financial press or the investment, um, investment houses. Probably in the investment houses it's not worth the time of the analysts to be engaged in small companies because there's not enough flow of business for them. And actually, I really like that because uh, uh, if it's not on people's radar uh, generally, then we can um, hopefully um, find or uncover some of those, those gems. Now, many companies have been successful private companies operating well, and they've transitioned into a public company environment, usually to raise more capital for expansion or to create an exit event maybe for the family or the founder who have involved if it's a next generation kind of uh, timing issue. So uh, many of them have been successful businesses though and so the risk associated with their actual business is not necessarily high. Um, the companies may not be experienced in public company domain and there's some risk that they will mess up from that point of view in terms of how they report their earnings or their uh, narrative around the company, uh, maybe uh, not uh, until they mature into a public company. So those companies, I think, are not necessarily risky at all. They just continue in, in, with a good business. Um, there are, of course, many startups and newer businesses which might have a, a higher risk in that category. So I don't agree that all small cap or micro cap companies are inherently risky themselves. Um, they are illiquid, as I said earlier, so you have to have a high conviction when you go into those companies uh, that you want to really be there for an extended journey, or else you shouldn't take such a big position in it, take a small position and then you can work your way out of it much easier. Um, so those are some of the characteristics of uh, microcaps, and uh, we, as I said, started off very much in microcaps, we're still active in them, but as we've become bigger and need to deploy more capital, we've moved into the larger end of the microcaps or the smaller end of the mid-caps. Uh, um, uh, and indeed, we're, we're active in um, some companies that are, you know, billion dollar plus, um, such as recently with Fairfax that we've been an active investor in. We'll, we'll come to Fairfax a little bit later on when we discuss activist investing. 
when I was working as a, a multi-manager, portfolio manager, I would often allocate to microcap strategies. And there was considerable debate amongst some of the fund managers about how much money you could run in the space before it would start to impact performance. And I'd be interested to know uh, your thoughts on how much money could reasonably managed, be managed in a microcap portfolio before it starts to impact uh, your ability to outperform? Well, um, I think microcaps enable you, in fact, to outperform. There's high alpha in them if they get right. Uh, but as I said, not necessarily a lot of liquidity. Uh, what we've done in that regard is just make sure we're not fully in microcaps. And as I said, we've moved up the... Uh, the market cap scales into a higher um, value uh, propositions. But um, I, I think certainly, um, no, you, I, I think you're comfortably managing at least half a billion dollars, I think you could put into micro caps. But again, it depends on what your definition of micro cap is. I mean, it used to be companies of less than 20 million, now it could be 50 or 100 or 200 million. So. It depends on how rigid you want to be in your definition uh, of those companies. But uh, it is an issue um, if you need uh, liquidity as a fund because of redemptions. Now, one of the reasons that we set up as a listed investment company is that it is permanent capital. Um, so the money uh, stays in the company for the purposes of investing. So we don't mind that it's locked up in that sense. We don't have to sell out in order to fund a redemption. Uh, if people don't like the performance or what we're investing in, they can buy or, or indeed um, sell their shares on any particular day. And that's, that's the individual uh, investor's choice. But uh, to have a fully invested microcap uh, strategy where you're at risk of redemptions uh, in an environment where there's not a lot of liquidity is quite challenging. That's true. I think that's an important point that you've aligned the duration of your investor capital with the duration of your investment opportunity so that you've got the uh, the staying power in some of these smaller stocks. You're able to, to deal with the illiquidity that comes with that part of the market. So moving on to activist investing now, you mentioned Fairfax. Um, what interested you in Fairfax? And for, for listeners that may not know, Fairfax is an Australian newspaper and traditional news media has been challenged around the world in terms of the growth of online media and alternative media sources such as podcasts and blogs. Why well, did you decide uh, to take a look at Fairfax and, and invest? Well, Fairfax, as you said, was a traditional media powerhouse in Australia and indeed I think its market cap at one stage was in excess of $10 billion dollars and it controlled the advertising um, pipelines of uh, employment and car sales and uh, real estate. Um, it was a company that failed to adapt to the changing technology world and was relatively inactive in this space for almost a decade while the world changed around them. And uh, progressively, its valuation came down as its earnings came down. And uh, we... Uh, came to came to our attention when its market cap had fallen to something like six or seven hundred million dollars about uh, three or four years ago, maybe. Um, now it was still generating quite a bit of uh, EBITDA, despite it um, uh, uh, the the direction being uh, 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 down. Uh, 
but um, and it was representing a very cheap a multiple of that EBITDA, and it still had some arguably very good brand names and publications, um, and a lot of um, uh, uh, large overhead and operating cost structures. So our view was that um, management who were focused on change and looking at um, adopting new technology and uh, properly addressing the challenges of the business in terms of its expenses, moving the traditional physical subscriber base to an online subscriber base, selling off some assets that were non-core, could represent a big turnaround in uh, the approach to this company. And we'd seen it again overseas with some of the publications um, who have adapted with new, basically new leadership. So we felt that a focused leadership could turn around the fortunes of this company, as I said, after they were generally dormant for 10 years. Um, and that's why we started to invest in the uh, shares at that time. But in conjunction with investing, we were becoming uh, more vocal in our view to management and to the board that they should get on with the tasks at hand. And they had to take out a lot of costs. They had to um, reduce their physical locations. Uh, they had to change the nature of their printing presses to adapt to the smaller, uh, narrower kind of papers that were emerging. They had to invest in uh, their uh, platforms to enable digital subscriber base to be engaged. And they started to do that. And indeed, they started to sell off some um, assets. In their case, they had a big investment in a company called Trade Me in New Zealand. And in liberating the money from some non-core assets, they were able to fund the cost of reducing uh, employment numbers and while still retaining a fairly robust uh, balance sheet. So that excited us, that potential, and that's played out pretty well for us because uh, the shares has gone, have gone from around um, 25 or 30 cents, I think, which was their low end, and um, I think $1.10 with the um, combined value of its spin-off company and their parent company. I'm, I'm guessing that going through that process with Fairfax would have taught you a lot about traditional media and also uh, digital media. What do you think is the future for traditional media? Does it survive? Uh, look, I, th I think it, uh, I think uh, time will tell, um, obviously. Um, I think we've seen a sort of a leveling off now to a uh, more uh, normalized situation for the time being, which is uh, a greatly reduced number of physical papers, but not a disappearance altogether. There is still... Uh, uh, people who like their physical format, um, and that will probably change over the course of another 10 years as the generation who likes to touch and feel the newspapers, uh, you know, move on. Uh, obviously, more and more people are online, and that is the trend. So the, the likely outcome is that at a point in time, we'll probably won't have papers, and uh, it might come in stages. You might find that the midweek papers disappear, First and people who have more time on the weekend may still enjoy the uh, the, the time to read a, uh, a hard copy paper. But if you look forward ten or twenty years, you'd have to say that it probably disappear altogether. But um, uh, I'm not sure. But I think the trend will be in that direction in any event. 
So the papers may disappear, but the masthead may survive in some form. Yes, I think the masthead uh, has still got integrity and it's still got value and indeed can be um, uh, internationalized and, uh, and pushed in certain other directions. So I think they have to protect that. They have to protect the, uh, the journalistic integrity. Um, and I think that model is changing as we go along. They have to be conscious to protect that and indeed invest in it to make sure that it does survive and there is there is value. Is it, but isn't that hard? Because you mentioned that they've been having to cut costs and I, I see a lot of traditional news media that's now moving online seems to be they seem to be relying more and more on contributing articles and articles from people other than staff. Yes, well, I think that's part of the changing world. The company had to take out costs. They weren't all in the journalistic side of things. They were in their sort of uh, behind-the-scenes production side, if you like, uh, uh, to, to a big extent. I think the quality journalists, the journalists who attract uh, media attention, will probably not only survive, but they'll probably flourish because their distrib- ability to distribute their uh, work is wider now and... Uh, I mean, you, you can you can um, compile your own newspaper now from journalists all over the world, if you like, and uh, you have to subscribe to certain uh, access points to do that. But in theory, you can create your own tailor-made newspaper. And I think that may be part of what happens in the future. But those journalists with integrity, those journalists who can still attract viewers, I think the value of them, uh, the commercial value of them will go up. They will be able to charge differently for different uh, content. So in one form or another, uh, people will still want to get news, uh, both in-depth journalism, in-depth editorial comments, and more social news. But it all, it all uh, you know, that, that's, that's a view on the future. I'm not an expert in the field, but what we did identify was, again, that there was value in an asset, even though the uh, market cap had gone down from its previous glory. Uh, we thought there was a turnaround story in there with a more focused management, uh, making some tougher decisions. And they've made a lot of decisions along those lines. They've still got more decisions to make. Uh, but certainly the market has respected them what they have done and the share price has bounced back from its lows. And that's what we look at when we look at some of these um, turnaround or activist uh, kind of um, situations. We want to look for... There's no point in activism for the sake of activism. You have to have activism with an outcome in mind uh, to get people who are uh, more focused on ultimately creating shareholder value. That's what we're interested in. We're a shareholder. I believe in the um, ownership of the company is through its shareholders and management and the board should be respectful of that ownership and really work to align their interests to the shareholder outcomes, as well as protecting other stakeholders in the organization. So moving on to technology companies, what's more important, the idea, the technology, or the people? Uh, I think they're both important. We're backers of people as a uh, first filtering point for us when we look at an investment. But with technology, you have to have the clear vision. You have to have a purpose or direction that you really think you can penetrate because usually you're trying to disrupt something or you're challenging an existing way of doing business. So there has to be a pretty big vision. There has to be uh, 
the ability to deliver on that has to be sort of clear. Um, and it's expensive to challenge and disrupt something. Those you're disrupting are defending as vigorously as they can. So it's not an easy playing field, but it's a very exciting playing field. I saw a chart this morning that was showing the number of IPOs in the US that have no revenue. And uh, it's spiked recently to levels uh, seen usually around the time of a financial crisis. And that brought to mind a question about how do you think about the tech uh, companies that you look at in terms of viability? How do you distinguish between a company that's uh, viable and not viable? Because in, in most cases, as you said earlier, they have no earnings yet. So you've obviously got to look at other things. Yes, look, I mean, um, you've got to do your research into the opportunity that a company is portraying that it can penetrate. How many other players are in that trying to do the same thing? Uh, are there those that are ahead of you and why are they ahead and what's their technology offering? Um, what's their revenue offering? Um, or are you sort of the leader in the field of change? So there's a lot of objective analysis to do and there's a lot of subjective analysis to do that is difficult. I mean, I think investing is it's an art and it's a science. So you have to uh, balance the two. The ability to invest in the future is not for all investors that is uh, you know some investors just want a dividend yield and that's what they're happy with and they want certainty and they don't want to take uh, too much risk and that's fine and they are the people who wouldn't have invested in Amazon they're the people who wouldn't have invested in Google or Apple or some of the companies that that are now monster companies that have really uh, being created in the last uh, decade or, or thereabouts. And there are, there are those new monster companies that are out there and being, um, uh, at, you know, at, at the end of our fingers on their fingertips. Now, you can avoid this sector altogether and miss out on what's clearly happening, is, which is disruption. Now, why is disruption happening at such a rate of speed? Is because we've advanced in the scientific application of technology. We do have opportunities through machine learning, advanced technology like that, robotics, much faster computer power, which is enabling um, algorithms to process much more quickly large data. So the tools to enable technology companies to move forward are out there now and much more available. So disruption, change, innovation is in a way never been easier in in uh, in mankind's probably history and uh, will have a profound impact and it's going to affect many many industries um, and and people are both scared of them and people are looking forward to the opportunity for them so we have to work our way through that environment it's a difficult environment it's not for everybody and you have to have uh, skills and you have to tap into other skills. And that's why we have partnerships with people in Silicon Valley or in San Francisco and in Israel and other centers of excellence in this field so that we can make a uh, sensible uh, international-based assessment of the opportunity. Mm -hmm. And that's what we're trying to do. A big part of the opportunity with a lot of these tech companies revolves around the user and uh, 
various ways of estimating the value of a user. Do users have value and how do you think about estimating what they're worth? Uh, look, I think users definitely have value. You'd rather have more traffic going through your, your uh, app or whatever it is that uh, you're putting forward. The ability to monetize the users is uh, the second question. First get the users and get the traffic. Different companies have different models to monetize. You have to be comfortable that that model makes sense from a user experience point of view as an individual or an organization. Um, some will and some won't translate into revenue and um, you can see other precedents. There are already a lot of companies that are in the process of monetizing eyeballs or users. Uh, which of those models are working? Why are they working? And, what is, and what's the relevance to the particular company you're looking at? That's part of the assessment. Uh, they definitely have value. How much value is part of it will come out as part of that assessment. Do you think the problem for a lot of startups is that their cost to get the user exceeds the value that that user might have? I think that's uh, that is proven to be the case in in many companies, and that's a flawed business model, obviously. Um, even though it offers excitement and uh, on face value potential. Companies have fallen over for that reason, and if they haven't been able to pivot their revenue model or change their revenue model sufficiently or lower the cost of acquiring a user, then they'll probably go out of business or, or suck in a lot more capital without the appropriate outcome. Um, we have to be careful of that. We have to look carefully and um, make our quality judgment with its best information that we can assess on those type of situations. It, it seems to me that a lot of internet users have been making a Faustian bargain with a lot of the providers of apps and software. Facebook comes to mind in that they're happy to share their personal data for free, uh, knowing that they're being sold targeted advertising and, and other things because they've, they've valued the benefits of being on the app as being more important than the personal information they've given up. Yeah. That seems to be changing somewhat now that people are discovering more about what these companies are doing with that information. Is that something that you're tracking and do you think that has the ability to or, or carries the risk that it might disturb some of the uh, the business models yeah. of the incumbents? I think clearly with the um, most recently the issue with Facebook, the issue of privacy, the issue of access to data, um, has become a lot more topical and indeed I think Congress are investigating it and um, um, it is a real turning point with people and the world that we've, uh, uh, the, te that the world that technology has led us to at the moment, the access to data and the use of data. I think uh, there will be more governance through legislation about uh, uh, managing this exposure. But ultimately, I don't think that will stop the progress of technology and uh, use of information for analytics and uh, uh, predictive behavior and things along those lines. But there'll be more awareness and more probably disclosures around it. People will be able to opt out, but at the end of the day, I don't know how many will opt out. People will be able to charge for their data and the information or get some sort of rebate back. And I think that'll still need to be determined what uh, is the commercial value relating to that. But 
I think you're right. There is a changing uh, um, sentiment at the moment, which will translate to some degree of change. It's all very interesting, and I'm sure you'll be looking keenly to see how it plays out. Given your experience investing with a whole range of tech startups, what advice would you give startup investors looking for capital in terms of how they interact with people like you? Well, I think they have to be as transparent as they can with their strengths and weaknesses. They have to um, demonstrate an ability to pivot if something goes wrong, because inevitably it does. Um, so whilst they have to be passionate, they have to get a sense that those entrepreneurs are fast on their feet as well and flexible in their thinking. I would say most of them should uh, be more modest in their valuation expectations as they're starting off. And uh, often they should raise more capital than they think they need because generally it takes longer to penetrate a market than uh, their optimistic assumptions usually will have in their model um, and it usually costs more to get to that point. So from our point of view, we would prefer lower entry points, more capital as a buffer zone. Mind you, that requires also a conviction of us that they will be respectful of the cash and not burn it too quickly, even if they raise more. So we want to know there's good disciplines around the um, application of that cash. Uh, and we don't have any problems if um, they build in some optionality or upside on achievements of success. So even if they lower the valuation and dilute themselves a bit more aggressively at the beginning, they can catch up later on if they actually achieve their outcomes that the investor group hope that they will achieve. Um, so that, that would be sort of our approach. And uh, if it's a sort of inverted commas, a crazy valuation, then we're not likely to, uh, to participate. If the hockey stick that they're presenting is too extreme, then we will back off and say there's other opportunities to look at. And maybe we'll miss out on a few opportunities in that regard, but, but we also uh, won't uh, jeopardize the overall uh, thorny technologies by chasing too hard something that is too much of a blue sky dream. I think that's some great advice for startups there. So wrapping up our conversation, you've been really generous with your time and telling us about what you do and, and how you think about investing. I've got to ask you the tough question. What have been some of your best and your worst investments? We always love hearing about the worst on the podcast. Yeah, well, I think um, I would say that we've been doing this for 25 years and we're still learning every day. Uh, and we make mistakes. Um, but fortunately, uh, the wins we've had far outnumber in number the mistakes we've made and also far outnumber in dollars the mistakes we've made. Uh, that's not to say we won't keep making mistakes and errors. And some of the errors may be absolute in terms of uh, companies just won't recover. And uh, others may be more you'll have a lower IRR because things will take longer, but they'll still come through over time, but may not in the time frame that you hoped. So um, some of the worst mistakes we've made, um, oh, well, there's um, 
There was a company called Hasty that we invested in a number of years ago. It was a sort of engineering construction services company. Um, why was it a mistake? It was a mistake from Thorny's point of view. We relied too much on one investment manager without having a countervailing or counterbalancing um, other views on the investment. And we've addressed that by having multiple people now on larger investments. Um, that had a number of overseas investments that we didn't either visit or understand the risk relating to that well enough. So um, we lost money on that uh, investment uh, enough to that we were angry about and I was uh, frankly, if I can say, pissed off about, but not enough that uh, um, you know affected the overall uh, growth of uh, Thorny. But it was still a reminder to us that you've got to do your due diligence, you've got to probe deeper and wider, and if it is something that uh, a company that has overseas operations uh, be at risk, that you may not know what happens in some of those subsidiaries, especially in complicated uh, domains, such as in that case was in the Middle East, uh, where they just weren't being paid uh, on some of the receivables, uh, for example. So that was one that we weren't particularly happy about, uh, and we take that on the chin. Uh, in terms of success, as I mentioned, Webjet just recently, um, a great success for us, uh, which is in Thorny Opportunities, a company called ServiceStream, um, which uh, we helped recapitalize at around 20 cents a share, probably four or five years ago. The shares are trading at around $1.60. Today, they're paying dividends again. I think we're up, uh, we've made six or seven times our money, six or 700% on our money there. And it was uh, just helping that company get its balance sheet right and help that company restore its integrity with the banking community and help that company go back to its core business and focus intently on that uh, was what we played a role in and making sure that the leadership of the company from the chairman to the board to the chief executive and chief financial officer uh, were uh, functioning well with a common strategy and a common goal and executing on the strategy. And that's what happened and it's been a great success for us. That's a great story. You've been kind enough to tell us about some of your mistakes. I'm interested to also know what you think mistakes investors make more generally. What do you think are some of the, the biggest mistakes investors make? I think the biggest mistake from speaking to investors that I've seen is that uh, investors don't understand the risk that each individual in investment they're making uh, could comprise of. And they don't build into their investment enough thought about the risk they're taking on and a strategy about mitigating that risk. Um, and perhaps they um, go all in on something, they maybe borrow to go in on something and if, so and if something goes wrong and they get a margin call, for example, uh, they don't have enough wherewithal other resources to uh, to hang in there and they're forced then to sell at the wrong time. So I think understanding risks and exposure um, is important. 
portfolio construction as part of that is something that I don't think a, people, a lot of people understand. And, um, um, and the other side of the equation is I think people ride their losses for too long instead of cutting their losses and they cut their profits too quickly instead of riding them to further upside. That's a classic problem, and in the behavioral finance literature, it's known as the disposition effect. It's it's something I've written about several times on my blog, and it's uh, yeah, it's a very hard uh, behavior to fight, but an important one to try and, and bring under control. So now I would recommend to all the readers that they, in fact, do read that they absorb as much information they can. Anyone who wants to be in the investment world should be reading in Australia the daily, the leading financial uh, publication or wherever they are in the world. Uh, they should follow podcasts. They should listen to successful investors. Any individual investment they make, they should read as much as they can on it and look for the nuances, look for the changing languages, look for points that might give them a hint on when to buy more or indeed when to exit. That's that's great advice. And you're absolutely right that uh, most of the greatest investors are voracious readers. They're always very curious and trying to learn. So you mentioned earlier on in our chat that when you started out with just over a million dollars, you never thought you'd get to where you are today. How important has luck been as a part of your success? Oh, luck is a very interesting uh, topic. You know, there is a cliche that says you make your own luck. I tend to believe in that. Um, and what does that mean? It means doing what I've said, uh, reading a lot, working hard, something goes wrong, work harder, focus, be unrelenting in your pursuit of knowledge in relation to the investment you're making, set a high standard, uh, and I think if you're engaging in dialogue on a number of levels, then you'll see the opportunities as they emerge. Um, so you make your own luck by being exposed to more. You make your own luck by uh, knowing more than the next investor because you've read more or you've spoken to more people. So you can't control external events such as the global financial crisis, or a, a war that may erupt, but you can prepare your portfolio and your and your um, your cash balances or your borrowing capacity such that when an event occurs, you're ready to participate in the market. Um, everyone says you should be buying when other people are selling and vice versa. So um, I think if you learn from history and you'll see some of the patterns, you'll know that we pretty much go in cycles. So prepare yourself so for when a cycle does come, even though you don't exactly know what the timing is. But if you prepare yourself, then you're in a position to take action. And suddenly everyone said, gee, you were really lucky that you were ready to go and buy property when the downturn happened, knowing that over time property will perform for you or a particular company. So I think you make your own luck and then you have to uh, after you put yourself in that position, make sure that you're action-focused. I believe action is better than inaction, and um, I think that's probably uh, a final message that I can give to people. Uh, put yourself in that position, and when it's time to press the go button, make sure you do, even if it's for a modest amount and you can always add to it. 
Some great recommendations there. Preparation, persistence, and action. So with that, I'd like to thank you very much, Alex, for kindly spending some time with us and telling us a bit more about your story and, and what you do at Thorny. And we hope to hear more about you and Thorny over the coming months. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to the i3 Insights Podcast. For more information, please visit our website at www.i3-invest.com. Thank you.